0: The sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. And there we read Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus, securing an eternal redemption, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we are in a series. Through the letter of Hebrews and this morning we continue a large section of the epistle which the inspired author in this section is showing us the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. We know that God graciously condescended to humanity and chose to relate to us covenantally that he is our God and we are his people. And the two covenants that the inspired author of Hebrews is contrasting, showing the difference between in this section, this section, is the old covenant under Moses in the wilderness and the new covenant in Christ. And the reason that he is contrasting these two, showing the, the differences between them, is because the Hebrews were tempted to return to the old covenant covenant way of worship, that old covenant way under Moses, what we might know sometimes as the Old Testament, that old covenant way of relating to God. Most of these Hebrew Christians had been born and raised in Jewish families, so they were steeped in the rituals, in the patterns, ways of worship under the older covenant. But once they had put their faith in Christ, uh, they had left all those things behind. But now they were tempted to return to them because of their immaturity, because of the persecution that they were facing. And so the writer of Hebrews, as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, he explains why the form of worship under the older covenant has passed away. Why it is no longer a valid way to approach God, a valid way to worship God. See, it was adequate for a time in redemptive history. We know that God gave Moses and Israel very specific instructions on how to worship him through the tabernacle and later the temple. But we know that that was only meant to be for a time in redemptive history. It wasn't meant to be permanent. Instead, what it was doing is it was pointing Israel, it was pointing God's people to something more perfect, something greater, something eternal, something more eternal than the buildings made by human hands, which we know are not lasting, but it was pointing them, we know, to Christ. And so that's why in our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 9, in those first 10 verses that we read we saw how the writer describes what worship was like under the Old Covenant. And he also explains in our passage this morning why this form of worship has passed away, why it has become obsolete. And the answer is because we know Christ has come and he has fulfilled all of the things that these types and shadows merely pointed to. The worship in the tabernacle... And later, the temple, again, pointed forward to Christ. And now that he has come and accomplished our salvation, God has created an international church, a church that no longer has an earthly shrine, but one now that is united in Christ, who is the head. And so we see there in our text, as you look at the sermon outline, consider the first 12 verses that through Christ... You and I now have access to God. This is the main idea that the writer is getting across to us in these first 12 verses. Because as we see in these opening verses in Hebrews chapter 9, you noticed in our reading, I'm sure, the author gives us a guided tour of the tabernacle. If you've ever been on a guided tour, that tour guide is pointing things out to you that are significant author of Hebrews is in many ways doing this very thing. He's giving us a guided tour of the tabernacle, of that holy place that God instructed Israel to build in order that they might worship him according to his commandments. And this tabernacle that he describes here in Hebrews chapter 9 is described in even greater detail in Exodus chapters 25 through 30. It's in that section of Exodus that God told Moses to build the tabernacle exactly as God directed. It was to be a tent of meeting where God would meet his people. We know that it was a tent because God designed it to be portable so that God would move with his people through their wilderness wandering. God's presence would move with his people as they wandered and were directed toward the promised land. And so what did this tabernacle look like? What was it like? Well, we read in Exodus that there was first an outer court that was fenced by fine curtains connected to pillars. Now, this fence around uh, the, the tabernacle, around that court of the tabernacle, it kept... Israel at a distance, and it prevented them from coming too close to the tabernacle itself. And then within that fence, we read in Exodus, past those first curtains of that fence was the court itself that contained the bronze altar used for burnt offerings and the bronze basin used for ceremonial washings. And then... As the priests would move past that altar and that basin there in the temple court, as the priests moved past these things, was the tabernacle itself, the actual tent of meeting. And this tent was divided into uh, two sections. The first section was what was called the holy place. And as we see in our text in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2, That holy place contained the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. And it also contained the altar of incense. Now to get into this first section, the way that the tabernacle is described in Exodus and also here in our passage in Hebrews, to get into this first section, the priest had to pass through a curtain that separated the holy place from the outside world. But there was, we read in the text in Exodus and also in our passage in Hebrews, there was also a second section uh, to the tabernacle. And that section was called the most holy place. That section was further separated by another curtain. The inspired author of Hebrews in our passage describes it for us in verses 3 through 5. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail so we see here the sections of the tabernacle having been described What went on inside of them? What was happening inside the tabernacle? And that's what the author now describes in Hebrews, beginning with verse 6. There we read, These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. These ritual duties we know were duties like changing of the showbread and lighting the incense. And then we read in verse 7, but into the second section, again, that most holy place, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. See, loved ones, the inspired author here of Hebrews is giving us a guided tour of the tabernacle, in part because he wants to emphasize the great care and concern that God has for how his people are to worship him. There was a specific pattern of tabernacle worship that God revealed to Israel through Moses, a pattern that needed to be maintained, a pattern that needed to be held to. No innovations, no changes were allowed. And he also emphasizes, as we see in the description, the beauty of the whole arrangement. It was beautiful. Notice in Hebrews chapter 9 how often the word gold appears in the description. Why? Why does this word keep appearing? Well, it's because this earthly tabernacle was a replica. It was a model patterned after the heavenly reality the heavenly reality of that heavenly temple in which Jesus, our great high priest, is now ministering. And so the author, they hear as, as he's led by the Holy Spirit, is emphasizing the beauty of the earthly tabernacle because he is showing that there is something even better than this earthly tabernacle that Israel worshipped in. There is a greater reality that this replica, this shadowy tabernacle merely points to. Um, And so, as we think about the glory and the beauty of that earthly tabernacle, as as it's described in our text, I want you to think with me uh, this morning what the average Israelite in the wilderness thousands of years ago would have understood from seeing the layout of that tabernacle. Again, so much detail, wasn't it, in our text? What would the average Israelite have understood there in that wilderness seeing the tabernacle? Imagine with me an Israelite woman who is going to get water from a nearby well, and as she walks, she catches a glimpse of the tabernacle. As she looks at that tabernacle, what might she conclude? One thing she might conclude is that Those precious metals, those colorful curtains would have caused her to feel awe and wonder. Israel, imagine walking through the wilderness. You are surrounded by plainness, hills, trees, sand, whatever it was, bushes. And here is this beautiful tabernacle. that is a picture of heaven. It would have inspired awe instilled wonder in them, in her. And then she would have perhaps seen the sacrifices burning on the altar in the court, and she would have been reminded of the need for intercession for her sins and the sins of the people. But what else? What else do you think that she might have concluded in seeing the tabernacle? Well, one thing that she and all of Israel would have definitely understood in seeing the tabernacle and the way that it was laid out is the holiness of God. See, the reality of God's holiness would have been deeply impressed upon her, upon all of Israel, that God is not like you and me, that he is spirit. He is light. He is glory. He is perfect. He is holy. See, here was this tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, the tent of of meeting in which the high priest would go to meet with God but once a year. And how was it designed? Well, there were fences all around. There was a fence in order to get into the court itself. And then there was a curtain that further fenced off the holy place. And then there was another curtain that fenced off the most holy place. She would have concluded, as would all of Israel, would have concluded that God cannot be approached any old way by any old person. She would have understood that access to God is restricted, that it's regulated, that God does not allow just anybody to come into his presence. In fact, we know from the Old Testament that whenever people presumed upon entering God in whatever means they wanted, uh, they usually ended up dead. And so, as we consider this reality, friends, we have to understand that nothing has changed. Nothing's changed. See, from this reality, God has not changed since this time. That his holiness, his holiness remains the same. That he continues to set the standard for all who might want access to him. He decides who gets to be allowed in and who doesn't. He is the king, and he decides who he allows to enter in. And some people, you know, as they think about this, they think that now that we're in the new covenant, everything is different. Under Moses, yeah, under Moses, you know, when I read the Old Testament, there's all these restrictions, and it seems rather severe. There's uh, restrictions about entering into God's presence and, and the way that, We might enter into his presence. But they sometimes say, you know, now under the new covenant, God is not so particular anymore. We don't have to rely on his invitation. We don't have to rely on his initiation, his instruction about about how he is to be approached in worship. And this is the case, I think, especially in the United States. Uh, We are a nation formed by rebels. Marcy Sproul uh, told the story of his friend John Guest. Uh, John Guest was a noted evangelist in England, and he came to the United States in the late 1960s. This was his first exposure to American culture uh, as he was there in Philadelphia. During his first couple of days in Philadelphia, his hosts escorted him around the city to attractions uh, such as Independence Hall, and the Liberty Bell, and they told him stories of the American Revolution in order to introduce him to the history of this new world, this new world that he was, as Sproul describes it, embracing as his new home. And John Guest was enjoying all of this, Sproul says, until he visited an antiques store. And among the items in this shop were placards and signs that displayed some of the battle cries and slogans of the revolutionary era. era. Slogans such as, no taxation without representation, uh, and don't tread on me. Uh, And John Guest says, but the placard that drew his keenest attention was one that announced with bold letters, we serve no sovereign here. And John Guest later told R.C. Sproul, that sign... Stopped me in my tracks. I had left my native land and come across the Atlantic Ocean in response to a call, a vocation to be a minister of the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom of God. But on seeing this sign, I was filled with fear and consternation. I thought, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to a people who have a profound aversion to sovereignty? And so we know and we see that this aversion is still present in many in our land. We pride ourselves on being a democracy, uh, being an egalitarian society, equal access. And so it may seem strange to many, even to Christians, that God must invite us into his presence. And we must enter into his presence then only on his terms according to his requirements according to his standards. So, loved ones, see, God has not changed from the old covenant to the new covenants. But what has changed? What we see that has changed is the means of our access, the way that we could access uh, the Lord, gain access into his presence. We see that the older covenant high priest entered into the most holy place with the blood of what? Of an animal. But Christ, we read in our text, our great high priest, entered into that most holy place with his own blood. And that blood has atoned for every race, and it sprinkles now the throne of grace as we sing so joyfully. Our text in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 explain this new reality, this newfound access that we have now through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We read, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Loved ones, the writer of Hebrews is pointing out the wonder of our newfound access to God, that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided us access to God, not on our own terms, but by fulfilling the terms that had been set by the Father. So as vividly demonstrated at the moment of the Lord's death on the cross, that moment where we read about the curtain of the temple being torn in two. We read about this in Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What we see there is that at the very moment of Jesus' death, this curtain was supernaturally torn. Not from bottom to top, it wasn't a man-made action, but from top to bottom, signifying something very important, that there was no longer separation and alienation uh, from God, that our sins had now been atoned for, that we were his children, we are his children by adoption through Jesus Christ. And so while Mark and the other gospel writers don't specify which curtain it was, as we noted in the tabernacle, there were many curtains listed, the book of Hebrews leads us to think that it was that inner curtain, that inner curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that most holy place where God dwelt, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the throne of God was on earth. We read about the significance of that torn curtain in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, when that curtain was torn in two, loved ones, from top to bottom, it was a signal to all the world, who, to all who could see, to all who, were, who had been given ears to hear. It signaled to all that the older covenant types and shadows had been fulfilled in Christ's sacrifice. The tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of that was now fulfilled in Christ. It was now done away with because it was now fully and finally revealed through the one who had come to do the Father's will. And so through Jesus Christ now, loved ones, we have access to God. And not only that, but we see in our text that through Christ, you and I now have a purified conscience, as we see our second point in verses 13 through 14. When we talk about the idea of conscience, the conscience uh, serves to tell us about ourselves. Um, It is our conscience that often reveals to us who we really are. We uh, may be able to put up a front to others, but our conscience reveals our true self. Charles Spurgeon who's a well-known preacher. He pointed out three problems that our consciences reveal to us. He said that first our consciences reveal to us a knowledge of past sinful actions. They remind us of our past misery, our past sinful actions. They also, secondly, revealed to us a knowledge of our sinful nature with its thoughts and desires, the way that we struggle now in sanctification. And thirdly, they revealed to us our ongoing contact with evil in this world. And so the writer of Hebrews reveals the good news to us that not only do we gain access through the blood of Christ, but we also receive cleansing from sin. This cleansing comes, as we read, not by dead works, by us trying to appease God by our works, but it comes by trusting Christ's work for you and for me. Not by trusting in my works, but by trusting in Christ's works. Loved ones, you know, and I know how difficult this can be. Because the reality is that we know we have been cleansed. We know our sins have been forgiven. But we so often struggle to believe because of the condemnation that we still feel. And the way that our consciences continue to remind us, as Spurgeon points out, pointed out, of our past sinful actions. In our present struggle with sanctification. They are that constant reminder of how we fall short. And when we think about this conviction in our conscience that we sometimes feel, we have to understand that it's not always bad, uh, especially in situations of unrepentant sin. Uh, that is God's Holy Spirit making us uncomfortable in our sin, leaning upon us lovingly in order to draw us toward repentance. But we know, don't we, that so often that conviction can lead to condemnation. Condemnation, which Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we are no longer under as Christians. And so, loved ones, it's important in those moments of condemnation to preach the gospel to yourself to remind yourself often of the blood of Christ that was shed for you, securing your eternal redemption. It's important in those moments of condemnation to bring to mind that external word that comes from outside of us to us, that word of pardon that we have been reconciled to God and we have been forgiven. Many of the, the Puritans, for example, they used to keep a list of, Uh, particular promises of God that were most precious to them. And in times of doubt and darkness, they would pull out that list and they would review those precious promises over and over until those promises and those assurances would satiate their souls, would remind them again of the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. They would pray that the Spirit would bring them back with reassuring conviction and joy in their salvation. A friend of mine in high school had this uh, same practice. He kept a small notebook in his pocket, and in that notebook, he'd write his favorite uh, verses as he would go through his daily Bible reading, and uh, I loved it because he called that little notebook his dagger. He'd say, the Bible is my sword, Uh, this is my dagger. This is what I pull out sometimes. This is when I'm feeling heavy of heart, when I'm feeling oppressed, or when I'm feeling uh, particularly uh, under the weight of condemnation for my sin. You know, I love how Christian replies to Apollyon when they face off in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. Many of you may recall this scene. where after Apollyon, who is, uh, represents Satan in. In the allegory, after Apollyon accuses Christian of a series of sins, remember Christian's reply, you're right, but I'm actually even worse than that. That disarming statement then sets up the death blow as the accusations continue to fly from Apollyon toward Christian. As he reminds him of his past sins, you almost fainted when you first set out on your journey. You also attempted to get rid of your burden in the wrong way instead of patiently waiting for the prince to take it off. You sinfully slept and lost your scroll. You were almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when you talk of your journey and of what you have heard and seen, you inwardly desire your own glory in all you do and say. was Christian's reply. He says, all this is true and much more. That you have failed to mention. But the prince, whom I now serve and honor, is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these infirmities possessed me while I was in your country. For there I allowed them to come in. But I have groaned under them, have been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon from my prince. Loved ones, we have obtained pardon and access, and cleansing through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Apply this word of assurance to our souls, we pray, and cause us to live in light of the grace that we have been shown.